Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Customs of the World, using cultural intelligence to adapt wherever you are. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Friday, August 15th, the All Criminal Justice Edition. I am hijacking the Gabfest, taking it over, holding a New Haven show with two excellent guests, James Foreman, who is a law professor at Yale Law School, and Veshla Weaver, who is a political science professor, also at Yale, because we're in New Haven. Thank you guys so much for coming and joining me. I'm so grateful. Thank you for having us. So when we planned doing this edition, this will be the all-criminal justice edition of the GabFest, we didn't know that our topic was going to be burning a hole in the news. But that is what's happening. We will start first by talking about the death of Michael Brown, who was shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri, last Saturday, and the protests that have followed that shooting. Our second topic will be the death of a man in New York City in a police chokehold and the investigation that has followed. And our third topic will be a new book by sociologist Alice Goffman. It's called On the Run, and it's about criminality and mass surveillance in a poor inner city neighborhood in Philadelphia. And then, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Michael Brown was supposed to leave for college on August 11th. Instead, he and a friend named Dorian Johnson got into some sort of altercation with the police that left Michael dead. Dorian says the confrontation began when he and Brown were walking in the middle of the street and an officer approached and told them to get on the sidewalk. There's an eyewitness who says there was a verbal confrontation and when Brown started to flee with his hands in the air, an officer got out of the car or from the car shot Brown. The police say that Brown hit the officer in the face and that that officer went to the hospital with um, a a swollen cheek and that that explains the shooting. Whatever the actual incident itself, and I think it's really hard for us to know the answer, this has blown up into a set of protests and struggle and anger and dismay in the city of Ferguson, Missouri, which is just outside of St. Louis, part of St. Louis County. And I think many of us have been watching as the police have been reacting, and I would say overreacting to the shooting, showing up in riot gear and on Thursday night shooting tear gas and rubber bullets into a peaceful crowd. So I wanted to start by asking you what you think about whether we know that the Ferguson cops were in the wrong here. Do you think we have enough facts to have a sense of that when we're talking about the shooting itself? Or is it really the aftermath of the shooting that has kind of grown larger and and taken over the story? Vashla, what do you think? Uh, First of all, we need way more information than we have right now. But based on my read, even if the youngster had assaulted or pushed at the cop first, that is still not measure for 
reacting with lethal violence, right? And certainly not to shoot somebody as they're retreating in a submissive pose with their hands up, saying I'm unarmed, you know. That's my read on it. I think the broader aspects of the case are what's concerning to me as a political scientist, right? The anti-democratic aspects of the case. No police accountability yet, no information, keeping the media out, not releasing the police officer's name, approaching it in riot gear with tactical force. That's what's most concerning to me. And there's a weird racial overlay to all this, right? Ferguson, there are 21,000 people who live there. Two-thirds of the city Mm -hmm. is black, but the leadership of the city is overwhelmingly white. 50 of 53 police officers, the mayor, most of the city council. So it has this oppressive Mm -hmm. sense to it simply because of that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand those details. I mean, I've been trying to figure out for the last couple of days what is actually going on in Ferguson just on that point, because that's not true of that many communities in 2014. I mean, what we know about Mm -hmm the right to vote and the Department of Justice is analyzed Do what percentage of a district needs to be majority black, even given the fact that lower income people might vote at lower rates, what percentage of a community needs, needs to be majority black for them to be able to elect a representative of their choice? And the numbers are in the mid 50s, high 50s. And so this community would seem to be able to vote this leadership out of power, right? Mm-hmm. We need to hear from people on the ground in that area who can tell Mm -hmm. us what's going on, because not even that's just the mayor. I mean, we're talking about a city council, right? These are multi-member districts. You would think that they would be able to elect some members of the city council. I I heard a number in the New York Times said that there were no blacks on the school board, which is, again, a Mm seven-member district. Those are the things that you need to change to be able to then change the police force. You need to have a police commissioner who's reporting to a mayor and a city council who's responsive to that community. That actually seems like it would be possible to achieve with those numbers of a 67% black community. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're kind of missing the ethnographic history of Ferguson that would tell mm-hmm. us. I mean, we know that this city, there's been a tremendous amount of white flight since the early 1980s. It was majority white. It basically flipped. Mm-hmm. It seems like in part because St. Louis itself was zoned in a way to make it hard for lower income people to move in. But Ferguson allowed for apartment buildings that are less expensive. And so some lower income people, some of them black, moved there. And yet we seem to have this leftover white power structure, which seems like this weird antiquated artifact, unless you're right, and we're just missing something here. I mean, I talked to a couple of people about this just in the last couple of days from St. Louis to try to figure this out. And the, the answer that I kept getting was, Ferguson is very small. You're talking about 20,000 mm-hmm. people. You People don't think of it necessarily as a geographic community that they need to vote in. And you add to that some transients, people living you know, in apartments, they move from here to there. So they're not invested in changing the local power structure. I bet they will be after now- Yes, right, right. And that'll be one really interesting test or lesson will be what comes out of this is the collective action, which right now has been leading to some peaceful protests. I know that wasn't true last weekend in the aftermath of the shooting. There was looting. But what Mm -hmm. we're seeing now are people standing on the streets and trying to exercise their right Mm -hmm. to free speech and Mm -hmm. assembly, as far as I can see. This is what makes the police response so curious to me. Why wouldn't they immediately 
even if they believed in in the officer's well intentions, say we're setting up a civilian review board, we're going to take the steps taken in these other small cities, we're going to immediately meet with the family, we're going to bring in uh, leaders that have dealt with these issues before. When people feel like they have outlets where they have a democratic channel to express themselves, they do peacefully. When they don't, you see looting and you see rage. Right, exactly. I've been thinking a lot about the Trayvon Martin case because Mm -hmm. it was another moment in which a small town Mm -hmm. police department seemed to completely blow it and misread a racially charged situation. And one thing I wonder is whether when small towns are in the spotlight like this, we see them fail to live up to some standard. And in some sense, it's really disappointing. And in the another sense, it's not that surprising. Why should they be ready for prime time in this way that when you have all this national attention, you would necessarily come through? But maybe I'm being a total snob and there's no reason to think that a small town wouldn't be able to handle something like this. There's certainly, you know, certain things that you wouldn't expect a small town to be able to, they're not going to have a sophisticated press office and PR team. And there's also a certain amount of resentment that people, I mean, everybody that I talk to in St. Louis is sort of frustrated. The national media, you know, people are diving Mm -hmm. in, they're reporting things that are completely not nuanced and attuned to the local reality. These are people who are critical of the police department, but they're still frustrated at the media's response. So I get that. At the same time, some of the things we're talking about, some of the things that Veshla is talking about, that's decency. And that's, you would actually think that a small town leadership that was connected to that community, if it were, that there'd be a town hall meeting before the media even showed up. Right. No, they Mm -hmm. do seem completely to be missing their own community response. I mean, the other thing that's really been shocking to me are these images of the camouflage and the Kevlar vests and the riot gear and the armored vehicles. I mean, it looks like a war zone and the Mm -hmm. police appear to be so faceless and heartless when they deck themselves out in all Mm -hmm. this gear. There's been lots of coverage linking this to the Department of Defense, Mm -hmm. to the federal government, ratcheting up Mm -hmm. the availability and money um, that local police departments can use. And it just seems to me to be totally backfiring. It seems like they'd be so much better off if they didn't have all this Mm -hmm. stuff that's separating them from the reality of the community and what they're, you know, to go at protesters with rubber bullets and Mm -hmm. tear gas when you can see from the footage that there wasn't any violence apparent right in front of you. It just makes them seem like thugs. But I'm not surprised because this is the tools that they've been given. And I would say that it harkens back to the 1970s. That's that's its starting point. When we infused local, yokel, small, unprofessionalized police departments with enormous amounts of resources, we gave them riot tanks when there was no danger of riots in, in these small towns. This is the era when SWAT teams began. This is the era of this bulletproof vest and all of this gear and gadgetry that now when police are fearful, they turn to these tools because they don't have civilian review boards, because they don't have connections with the community, right? The timing, I think, when the change happened, whether it was the 70s or the 80s, I mean, I'm reading a lot of stuff from the 1980s where police departments are talking about being, you know, outgunned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in D.C. and in Philadelphia, they're talking about, well, we've still got revolvers and the crack dealers have these semi-automatic weapons. So I don't know exactly when the shift happened, but I agree with you completely that a shift has happened. And I actually think I don't know what 
good will come out of this. But one of the things that I feel like people's attention is focused on is the over-militarization. Mm -hmm. And those images, if nothing else, mm -hmm. whatever people say about the initial incident, those images have been so striking, especially in an era of dramatically declining crime rates that we're living in now, I think it's possible that you would start to see some pushback on that level of militarization. Yeah, I hope you're right about that. I want to talk a little bit more about the decision the St. Louis County Police Department has made so far not to release the name mm -hmm. of the officer who did this shooting. Do you think that's defensible, Vashla? I don't think it is. They may have reasons that I'm unaware, threats to his life, you know, but I don't think it's defensible. We need to know, has he had prior incidents? Have complaints been lodged against him in the past? And I'm assuming it's a him. What does his arrest record look like? When we look at the use of force data in places like New York, the use of force is done by a surprisingly minority number of officers. You can track it. You can see the people, the officers that are stopping way above the norms and where they're stopping how often they're putting somebody, you know, spread eagle up against a police car and such. That would allow the community to know, I mean, what if the officer was black, right? This would change the conversation. But the thing I'm most disturbed about and that we haven't yet talked about is society's response, right? Why in the wake of a person gunned down on the street, do we immediately have to go to this justificatory kind of stuff. Well, did he deserve it? What were her, his priors? What was he carrying? How did he behave? Why can't we just acknowledge that an innocent person lost a life on the street and a mother is feeling the pain of it? You know, because I've been thinking about this a lot over the past couple of days. What will it take for us to move beyond this moment? And honestly, what it will take is for whites to come out and march alongside blacks to say, no, 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 this hinders all of us, our progress, though it's not going to be my son or daughter. The fact that your son or daughter died behind this, I empathize with you. And that I haven't seen. Why, why am I seeing, and I know this isn't scientific, but on my Facebook chatter, you know, more grief around Robin Williams from my, my white friends and colleagues, and not shame, right, and commentary on the indignity of all of this by whites. Once whites stand up and march alongside blacks and recognize that this damages democracy for all of us, we're going to keep seeing these headlines. I mean, to me, that speaks to the distance between communities, right? I mean, this is something that James has written about that I think a lot of white middle class people don't know any black people who, you know, live in poor neighborhoods. It feels like this big divide and that makes it mm -hmm. harder to express empathy or just makes mm -hmm. people feel kind of paralyzed and confused. And then yeah. they don't know quite what to say or do. I don't know. I'm, I'm less willing to let them off the hook. I think um, it's amazing to me that we still trade in this myth of black criminality to let us feel okay about the fact that a young person, right? We would never, and there have been studies on this, not just the shooter studies, but the studies by Phil Goff and others that actually show that when we view society alike, not just police, when we see black boys, we do not see them as boys. We do not see them as teens. We do not see them as youngsters. We see them as fully culpable adults, can't we see our children as children? Right. I think that's 
true about teenagers all too often. So you used the word innocent to describe Michael Brown, and you feel like you know enough to use that word. I mean, we know he was unarmed. Maybe he got into some kind of struggle. Certainly there was a verbal altercation. One witness said she saw him tussling with an officer mm-hmm. kind of through the window. I mean, to me, that's still not enough to mm-hmm. get us anywhere to the point of, you know, the use of deadly force and their mm-hmm. really limited constitutional standards, legal standards on when the police um, are allowed to do that, which James will lay out for us in a moment. So I I can see why you would use that word, but I think a lot of people would hesitate until we know more to say that Michael Brown was blameless. But maybe you're not using innocent to mean the same thing as blameless. Or maybe you just feel like there's such a difference in power here that... All I know is that he was walking down the middle of the street. To me, that's an innocent childhood behavior. I've done much worse in my adolescence. That's all we know so far. So until somebody gives me more information, and even if they give me more information... How many youth commit minor level things, you know, drug offenses, spray painting buildings? When white kids do it, we think of it as innocent boyhood. I'm not. When you originally asked the question, you know, do we know what happened? Can we come to a judgment? I don't feel like I can. Mm. And so for me, whenever these cases happen, somebody immediately wants to start talking about, well, who did what and and. And then even the question about should they have released the name? I mean, so many of these questions to me are somewhat beside the point, at least the way that I feel it Mm -hmm. emotionally. This case is about a phenomenon. It's about a history. In the individual case, we never know a day or two later. I mean, this is the partially the defense lawyer in me, but it's just the truth. We just do not know right after the fact. And we often, sometimes we never don't, find out. we never know. Mm-hmm. And or it's something where it remains disputed, even after mm-hmm. a trial, people have different reactions to the evidence that they witnessed, you know, through the lens of the media. But what we do know is that incidents like this happen time and time again. Mm-hmm. There's just such a long roll of names. Mm-hmm. When I when I look at my law school students now and I talk to them about this case and I see the pain that they're feeling and caring. I mean, I remember being in law school and for me, you know, it was Rodney King. Yeah. And but everybody has mm-hmm. you can just pick the moment in time when you first were overwhelmed yes by how hard it is to be black and male, and black women suffer too, but black and male against a law enforcement apparatus that so often makes assumptions about you. And that heaviness and that mother, the quotes from that mother... Mm -hmm. From Michael Brown's mother, when mm-hmm. she talked about, she thought she had made it, she thought she had done it, mm-hmm. is so hard. And she thought she had, and now she lost her boy. That pain, that's the pain that I feel from these cases. And that is the pain of centuries. That's the other thing. When you were saying, what do we know? What we do know is a historical patterning of this kind of white law enforcement, majority white against majority black violence. And I'll call it violence. If you go back to the black newspapers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, one of their biggest running commentaries were pleas 
for help against police violence against their communities. Headlines that raise the goosebumps on your arms. Headlines like Negro life cheaper than a hog's. Penalties worse for stealing a pig than murdering a Negro. Headlines like that. And so if you are a youth growing up in this time, you've got Obama, you've got some things to celebrate, but then you also have these constant reminders that regardless of the facts of the case, a black boy died and bled out in the street. That's what you're seeing. Right. And the level of suspicion that black teenagers and black man experience, right? The fact that you just don't get the benefit of the doubt in the moment with the cops, afterward, when you're explaining it, that there are all these barriers to people seeing you as innocent, right? And that's the part, I don't want to end on a hopeless note at all. And I do feel like there have been aspects of this case that are really hopeful, mostly the response, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing all the solidarity, seeing people really, mostly black people, but just seeing this kind of overwhelming sense of expression of how unfair this is. But then I worry we're just seeing the sort of 2014 Twitter version of an outpouring of sentiment that we've seen repeatedly over the decades, and the underlying pattern doesn't seem to shift. And it's kind of bewildering. And it's bewildering to think about, well, what would it actually take? And I've been talking sort of casually with folks, academics and non-academics, about what would it really take? And I mean, People are so at the end of their wits. I've heard, well, they should start a group called Friends of Black Friends of the NRA and start to arm themselves. I mean, I've heard, you know, things that are, well, all black people, especially black male youth, should, everybody wears uh, suits and ties all the time. And so that when, if they are gunned down, everyone you know, becomes miserable. I <laughs> that mean, sounds awful. <laughs> you know, it, it, because what else is there? Protests are old. Right, right. Right. I don't know what they've co- accomplished in the last decade. The fact that the people of Ferguson could vote in new leadership on their own right. gives me some righteous yes. sense for them. But I do feel like nationally, we are so far from solving this problem and it just keeps popping up in different places. What do we tell our children? Right. Right. I mean, I have a black child. And do you know my first thought when this all came out was, man, I'm thankful he's light skinned. Now, how bad is that? That's really depressing. It's really, I'm glad he's sort of racially ambiguous. Ooh, that's heavy. All right, let's close out our first topic there and move on to our sponsor. The GabFest is brought to you today by The Great Courses. And we wanted to flag in particular a course called Customs of the World Using Cultural Intelligence. The desire to learn doesn't stop after college, and that's the motivation behind The Great Courses. It has engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts. Like this course we wanted to highlight today called Customs of the World, Using Cultural Intelligence to Adapt Wherever You Are. Professor Livermore in this course provides in-depth insight into a wide range of cultural dynamics around the world. He's providing valuable tools to help people interact and behave both personally and professionally in various cultural settings. And the whole idea is to avoid the kind of costly misunderstandings that can take place when we're not good at uh, communicating across cultures. Great Courses offers over 500 topics, including history, science, photography, and more, and you can watch or listen at your convenience from anywhere with online downloads and streaming with the Great Course apps or with DVDs and CDs, and no pressure exams. 
So here's our special offer for Political Gab Fest listeners. You can order Customs of the World and get 80% off the original price if you do what I'm about to say during our limited time. You go to thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest for this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest. Last month, a 43-year-old man in Staten Island was allegedly choked to death by several Staten Island police officers. He was standing on the street. They accused him of selling cigarettes without collecting taxes. He said that he had actually been breaking up a fight. There's a video of this incident, which um, I found very hard to watch, in which the confrontation goes from verbal to physical in like a split second. And then Garner is in a chokehold, and it's pretty clear that he can't breathe, and um, yet the police don't let him up off the ground. So this death, too, has led to a great deal of social media outrage and has really put Mayor Bill de Blasio on the spot in New York. He's supposed to be this liberal mayor coming into power. And is he going to hold the police department accountable for this death? The police union has been really pushing back against any kind of big statements from the mayor condemning the police department. So what I wonder looking at this case is, do we have the right rules for thinking about how police use force? Um, And I was wondering, James, if you could talk about that a little bit. I think the rules, by and large, are okay. It's a question of how those rules are implemented. So, I mean, the Supreme Court has said in a famous case, Tennessee versus Garner, the police can use deadly force when a suspect is fleeing and there's probable cause to believe that the suspect will pose a grave threat to the officers or to the public at large. So nothing close to uh, this incident. I mean, this is not going to be decided on what the rules are for the use of deadly force. This is going to be decided on um, whether or not this was an illegal chokehold and whether the officer could have reasonably known that their action was going to produce the result that was produced or whether there are other factors like asthma or otherwise that contribute. I mean, that's how all of this is going to play out. So I don't think that the the problem here are the underlying rules. I think that the problem is, do you have a culture in which police have been allowed to cross certain lines. You have a rule that says you can't do chokeholds, but in fact, we now know from the reporting Mm -hmm. that there have been a lot of chokehold cases. And only one person being punished, only one officer in the last few years, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, the the really big issue in this case and the thing that, again, I think something could change over time is this question of the role of the unions, So, and you alluded to this, if you think about what's happened in our country in terms of the teachers' unions and how uh, the teachers' unions in many quarters have been, some would say demonized or others would say, you know, held to account for protecting people. So where is the same level of criticism and critique that's being applied to Uh, unions that are protecting either police Mm. officers or prison guards. Rikers is the other thing that's going on. And in both cases, these union leaders are 
incredibly aggressive. I mean, they are speaking, they're basically being disrespectful to city council members at oversight hearings um, and saying, well, we're going to do a work slowdown. I mean, imagine, imagine mm-hmm. if a teacher took a kid on a on a trip and the kid drowns in the river and imagine if the Randy Weingarten started yelling (laughs) at this how dare you hold us accountable Mm -hmm. for this I mean it's remarkable to me right this is something that people could Mm -hmm. campaign around Mm -hmm. um and it doesn't mean we don't want to have unions right of course not I'm a union guy um but it does mean that there are going to be certain moments where we're going to say, you know what, you cannot defend that kind of, you can't defend that action. But what would bring greater police accountability? Are there kind of best practices out there? Are there places that have managed to navigate this tension? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is this is about leadership, right? So we know for police departments that there are, I mean, there are a group of police leaders that have been pretty aggressive about saying, you know, we want to have community-oriented policing. Mm -hmm. We are going to, of course, we're going to protect and defend our officers. But in fact, we think one of the ways of having a less violent city and officers under lesser threat Mm -hmm. is to have officers who are respected uh, by their community. So, But I, I also mean in the stricter sense of actually punishing you know, malfeasance when it occurs. So if you look at data on police misconduct cases, I mean, most cities settle, they go to bat for their people. Officers are rarely, if ever, disciplined. Rarely do prosecutors bring criminal charges against them. I mean, I wouldn't just say New York is alone in this. I mean, there the case that comes to mind of, of chokeholds is the famous Lyons versus LA case, where basically the finding was that 75% of people that had died in police chokeholds were black. And the court said, you know, you have no standing. You got to show that this will happen to you in the future every day, you know, as you go about your daily life. I mean, that just rips out the rug from under any claims of citizens being able to hold their the very institutions that have the greatest power over their very lives to hold them to account. And yet, if you think of the teachers union parallel that James was bringing up, and this hasn't happened anywhere, but some teachers unions are essentially distancing themselves from the bad apples, right? Mm-hmm. They're saying, look, the best way to make our protect our profession respected and valued right. is to acknowledge that the people who totally blow it need to go. And that's mm-hmm. not what we're seeing in these police cases. Mm-hmm. It's completely missing from it's the It's a dynamic. rally around and hunker down and double down on our claims. Right, right. And I mean, I think what's a little dismaying about this is that we've seen teachers unions do that because they are under attack more generally. Mm -hmm. And I would like to distance myself from some of that attack. And yet, Mm -hmm. with no kind of criticism that's broader at all, it seems like public sector unions like the police and the prison guards then don't make that move themselves to Mm -hmm. get rid of the bad apples. Mm -hmm. Now, how much do you think it will figure in to, you know, the deciding of this case, the videos, right? Not just the video of the actual chokehold, but of, you know, Garner laying in the fetal position for basically almost 10 minutes, looking dead as dead can be. And, and the EMTs are all, have also been suspended right. for the moment, right? Or at least they're not. Nobody's providing right CPR. Nobody's, you know, it's it's a very weird thing to see a person just like laying there dead and nobody's really doing anything. So the response in that, I mean, I wonder how much that will play into 
the ultimate. I mean, to me, when I viewed the video, I not only found it disturbing, I just was like, well, gosh. How did this happen? I mean, if that's not, you know, speaks to the value of black life, I don't know what does. You're just sitting around as the guy lays in the fetal position, obviously dead, like obviously not breathing. To me, the videos are the most interesting new aspect Mm. of these stories because they dispel all of the usual confusion about the facts. I mean, you can see what's happening. Right. It's And it was really clear that Eric Garner mm-hmm. hadn't threatened a cop. I mean, we were talking about that earlier. We don't have that same video of Michael Brown mm-hmm. in this case. It seems completely mm-hmm. beyond the pale that the police escalated the conflict in the way that they did. And so you one hopes that there are consequences. If there aren't, then you start to really just feel kind of ill, I think. Well, I could thing. imagine a black person or, you know, a black youth looking at this video seeing these police tatted up, you know, chewing gum nonchalantly, blasé, standing over this dead body. And what are we left to conclude while the narration of the woman taking the video is saying, see, that's Staten Island police for you. Right. You know, what are you meant to conclude? You know, that the police are supposed to serve and protect? So does this seem like a test for de Blasio to you? Does that seem like part of the story? I think it clearly is both the individual case, but also more broadly, the whole investment in a particular style of broken windows policing, which is I think that's going to be the question coming out of this, right? Because that's what produced the incident to begin with, right? Why are they hassling this guy in this way? Maybe he's selling cigarettes without collecting taxes, which is the exact kind of small infraction that broken windows policing is all about, right? Yeah. And and also to have a conversation about how and where broken windows policing is enforced. I mean, I was just earlier today, I was talking to one of my students. He's an undergrad at Yale, and he's from New York. And he was telling me that the Staten Island case, what was so eye-opening and demoralizing and in a way just sort of angering to him was how different the relationship is between these communities and the police from what he grew up in and he's policed Mm. by the same force Hmm. and he talked Mm. about you know he's upper west side he went to school high school in the upper east side and he says that he and his friends would go and get high in the park and if they saw a police officer they'd put it down but the, the scent is still lingering and they had no concern that they were going to be hassled, let alone killed. And that's the other thing about these cases that I think can be so so frustrating and so demoralizing is so many of the things that, you know, as black people we're asking for or we're demanding or we're saying, you know, we need this are complicated. Like good schools and adequate health care. And, you know, it's like there's many systems and but not being killed by Mm -hmm. the police is not complicated. Right. And so when you can't even get that on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. you are left to Mm -hmm. wonder, what do you what do you tell your kids? My mind kept coming back to, you know, sort of the basic responsibility of government is security of personhood. And this is a currency that black people do not enjoy. All right. I'm going to move us along to our third topic, which is about a really interesting new book called On the Run. The author is a sociologist at the University of Wisconsin named Alex Goffman. And she spent six years living in a neighborhood in Philadelphia 
and writing about a group of friends she made who were very mixed up in crime and also the subjects of heavy surveillance from the police. The book purports to make an argument about the problems of mass surveillance and mass incarceration, but it also tells this very close-up story of the effects of crime on a neighborhood and on the people who are committing it. So, James, I know you've written um, a review for The Atlantic Monthly, which our readers should look up as soon as it gets published in October. And this is a book that I think you wrestled with. There are some strengths here, but also um, some problems in how Goffman is presenting this community. So can you tell us a little bit about her main characters and how you think she frames the struggle that she presents them as having with the cops? Her main characters, I mean, she gets into the community f- with a character named Mike, um, who she meets when she's an undergrad and she starts to do research in this neighborhood and she meets a character, she calls Mike, and then she starts to meet his friends. And these are the, she calls them the guys on 6th Street or the 6th Street boys. And, you know, it's a group of guys that are mostly in starting in their kind of teenage years and going into their 20s. They live in what she says is not the poorest part of Philadelphia. She says it's not even considered an especially high crime neighborhood by the police department. That's what she says up front. But then when you get into the book, it seems like there's a lot of crime uh, there. And, and Mike a and lot of it are, are Mike it. and Chuck and her guy, the guys that she's spending time with are committing. It's a book about how they're policed, right? That's fundamentally mm-hmm. what the book is about. But along the way, they do a lot of things. And uh, their they com- adaptive behaviors. That's the critical part, right? No, 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 please, sorry. No, no, say. <laughs> Keep going. Keep adaptive going. No, it's just not now. how they're policed, but it's all of the weird, bizarre things that they come up with to keep themselves from being in police attention. So, you know, setting up uh, clean urine trades and the ducking and diving and just the, you know, avoiding hospitals at the birth of their kids and just elaborate stuff that you and I would just take for granted, you know, we don't have to do. Yeah, it's a whole world that gets created, right. right, exactly, by the fact that there is such a, an aggressive level of policing. So many people have warrants. I mean, they're actually, I mean, that's to me the thing about the book that's most different from other accounts yeah. that have, have told stories of low-income people in heavily policed neighborhoods is Almost half of the characters in the book, or almost all of the characters and almost half of the guys in the neighborhood generally, are actually wanted. They have warrants out for... They are fugitives. Now, that is different. It also means that we're reading about people who really are committing a lot of crimes, right? I mean, that's sort of the central premise of the book. Goffman wants to be using them to make an argument that mass surveillance and incarceration is part of the problem, but she's not writing about innocent people who are being hounded for no reason. So mm-hmm. how big a problem is that mm-hmm. for her thesis? Well, I guess I would... Let me say two things about it. One, the criticism that I have... I have one of the criticisms of I ha- that I have of the book that comes out in the review is that she doesn't actually make clear that this is not a representative group of young mm-hmm. black men. That's one problem. You could come away from the book and you might think and see the conversation we've just been having. It's a real problem when society thinks that if you're poor and black and young, you are carrying a gun and you're shooting up the neighborhood and you have a bulletproof vest as one of the main characters does. 
However, it should also be said, and I think this is really important, is that that doesn't mean you shouldn't tell stories and write books about those very heavily policed and criminally involved people, nor does it mean that just because you're in the game, that doesn't mean that the police then are allowed to do anything to you, right? right? And that's one of the threads back to our earlier conversation. One of the things that's been a little bit frustrating about some of the conversation related to Michael Brown is there's this idea that, well, if you're a good guy, if you're going to college— well, That's then, really important. Well, right. then this shouldn't exactly. happen. Yeah. And one thing where I, you know, I give her credit, she's not saying that these guys are on their way to college, but yet she's still saying the state has certain obligations for how it treats people, no matter, no matter how criminally involved you are. And I think that's right. How much does the book give us a sense of the effect that the criminality is having on the neighborhood. Because sometimes mm. you worry in dynamics like this that there are all these ordinary black people are kind of living a- among the criminals and finding them really hard to deal with and may need more protection from the police. Maybe that's why the police are there. Does the book give you a sense of that? No, not really. I mean, it's not focused on the rest of the neighborhood and how they're responding. She's really, I mean, she's living with. She's very zoned She's in on home, she, Yeah, she's embedded in this small, this group of guys that, mm-hmm. and there's some references to how they're perceived by the community, but it's not, mm-hmm. that's not very richly developed. I do think on your point about the maybe we need more police, right? This gets to this age-old debate, which has been coming out in all of these conversations, which is that it often gets presented as a trade-off. Right. You know, when this happens, people say, oh, well, the, but the black people I know want more police. And that's true. Like, if you were to poll any black community and say, do you want more or less police? By and large, people are going to say, I want more police. And... I want better policing, and I want fairer policing, and I want not to be killed for no reason. Mm-hmm. And, and I no want other, jobs. <laughs> and, 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 well, right. Such yeah. a long list. Right. But no other community is asked to make a, a trade-off between those yeah. those two things. Right, that having more police also means more danger to you. That Those, those things are supposed to be separate, not connected. So can I have a teensy-tiny disagreement with you? You better have a bigger than a teensy-tiny so disagreement. So I, I agree with everything you said. The one quibble I have is that one of the things I found most illustrative about the book is that her point is not, okay, these are, you know, low-level offenders, the police come in and harass them, and then they engage in all these techniques. Hers, and if you notice, she starts very young with some of them. Like, the the first character we're introduced to is Tim, who's the younger brother of, of Chuck, I believe, and he's eight years old, right? And he goes mute for a year or two because his older brother has been sent to prison. And she sort of follows him through these minor transgressions, right? Things like selling Lucy's and things that we wouldn't normally consider, you know, major offenses. And it's when they get under surveillance that it sort of drives them into this avoidance stuff that then leads them to do actually very quite serious criminal stuff that then creates this awful feedback loop. So it's not having this conversation about like, oh, well, they're really bad guys. Well, yes, they are. But I think part of her point is that some of the like over surveillance of their community actually leads them into these, you know, avoiding jobs so that they then have to sell drugs because how else are they going to, you know, support their... So that's just my minor 
I don't actually think she's undermining, you know, the criminality of what they do later on. It's the early stuff that I think is quite important. And maybe she could have drawn that out a little bit more. But I think her main intervention into this whole literature is, you know, so much of the focus of sociologists has been incarceration then leads to child poverty. Incarceration then leads to earnings unmobility. Incarceration leads to, you know, a cascade of bad harms that that come about. Her point is, no, these low-level things, you know, missing a court date, you get stopped for selling Lucy's or walking down the sidewalk and you're given an appearance, you know, you fail to show up to your court date because what, you know, maybe you're dealing with something else. And then all of a sudden you've got a serious offense. Now the police are really on you. And that's then driving your harms, not the incarceration. That's what I feel like her intervention is. Now, would you disagree? I mean, she's a little bit vague on what's the trajectory of all these minor stuff that leads to the major stuff. She's a little vague there. I agree. No, I don't disagree with that at all. I actually think that's one that's a strong part of the book. No, my my point about criminality, my point there is only to not portray Mm -hmm. them as representative of young because lots of indeed the majority of young black men in those conditions don't end up making those choices it that does not mean Mm -mm. that does qualify that most young black men at the bottom of the earnings ladder without education have at least one arrest by the time they're 20 that's right so they might be not be major offenders, but most of the group, I think she is making a representative claim by saying most of that group is having frequent involvement with the criminal justice system. But can't these two both things be true, both that you would have a large proportion of black teenagers mm-hmm. who have some arrest and that the serious crimes and most of the crime yes. would be committed by a very small yes. number of people, which are the people she is writing about? But right? her yes. point is that some of this low-level stuff and the low-level surveillance s- helps slide people into the major offense categories by keeping them under threat, by breaking up their social networks, right? Mothers and sisters and friends decide to keep their distance from these men. And so they become vulnerable in a series of ways that then, not for all, but for a very large chunk, become major offenders. The things you're saying you like about the book, I also like. And I so there's no distance between us on any of these points. I wanted a quibble, though. Well, I'm going to argue with you about whether this romanticizes the way this dynamic works or oversimplifies it. Because Mm. people do have some agency, right? And also, we've always had some people in every community who commit crime. So it's not like if you took away the cops and this mass surveillance and nobody there was going to be dealing drugs. Maybe it would change who it is or the greed to which they're doing it. And maybe these communities wouldn't be rife with crime the way we see. But I do feel like it sounds to me like she's making mass surveillance and incarceration stand for all the ills of poverty and that mm. some of them have to be coming more organically out of the people who are doing the crime. And I think that you're absolutely right about that. And I also think that they're coming from the context which she doesn't actually really discuss. Like, I was wondering throughout the whole book, 
what made this neighborhood this way? Once, you know, she she sort of alludes to the fact that at one point it was a middle class black community. So I want more of the what are the policies driving this? What are the practices? What are the informal residential living patterns that are leading to all of this? And she's quite vague on that. I think she's very good at drilling down deep. But in giving us sort of explanatory perspective, it's it's not quite as good. And we know we're in Philadelphia, probably West Philadelphia, but we don't know exactly where we no, are. So no. it makes it hard to go and check that. She also made this really surprising choice. She uh, burned all her notes, mm-hmm. not just like some of her notes, but all of them. And she says in her methodological note that she did it to protect the people she was writing about. She didn't want her notes to be subpoenaed. But it's really striking for a sociologist to leave, to take away all her own evidence and all also, couldn't she be subpoenaed anyway if the right, police based on wanted her knowledge. to ask her a question? And yeah. wouldn't her notes be – I mean, I don't know the nitty-gritty of how this works, but m- mostly when you're dealing with human subjects, like I have to lock all my data into a secure file. Nobody but me has the key. It's non-networked computer. You know, So even if I was subpoenaed, I'm not sure I, – I bet had she gotten IRB approval, which maybe she didn't, they would have protected um, her. I don't know the nitty gritty. What do you think? Well, I don't know about that. I, you're certainly right, Emily, that she can be subpoenaed and asked what she saw and heard and did. And there are a number of things she writes about where she was implicated. In, implicated. Were there. She was involved. She was, right. you know, there um, towards the end of the book. She's in the car. Um, mm-hmm. when she's in the car when what she's happens? in the car when Mike is going out to try to find the man who killed Chuck. Yeah. And she's driving. And, and she's saying that they hope they get him. He's got a yeah. gun on his lap. Yeah. And now the, the, it's an incredibly powerful part of the book. I don't want you know anybody who's interested in the book should go read that methodological note mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot there beyond what we're able to talk about right now. But just on this point, it's absolutely true that that if she if Mike had found the guy then she would be, be have and abetting, aided right? and abetted first-degree murder. Yeah, that's kind of a mm. surprising note to end on, but, but I think I'll leave it there. All right, somehow we have to move along to cocktail chatter, to lighter topics. You guys have to help me come up with some lighter <laughs> topics to end this discussion. Veshla, what will you be talking about this weekend as you have a glass of wine far well, away from serious discussions of criminal justice? Actually, I don't know if I have lighter matter. Um, I'm going to be reading the study that uh, Rob Sampson and a graduate student at Harvard did on gentrification by looking um, really deeply using Google Street View at Chicago neighborhoods and how they've changed since he did his landmark study back in the early 90s. And uh, his, I think their main finding is that many neighborhoods that started to gentrify and started to show the signs of gentrification did not ultimately become gentrified and, and got stuck in place. And one of the biggest predictors is the number of black people, the share of, of black people. So that's not a lighter note. But um, I think he was really <laughs> you good. that test. Yes, I did. <laughs> I'm okay. sorry, James, you better have something good here. No, no, no. I'm going to get an F as well. You should not have invited me and Veshla on this topic if you wanted lighter notes. I'm poor walk- listeners, man. All right, go <laughs> I'm ahead. I'm walking around with a book by Gilbert King called Devil in the Grove, mm. Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and the Dawn of a New America. 
America. And I am giving this book to everybody who wants to talk about Michael Brown, who wants Mm -hmm. to talk about Eric Garner, who wants to talk about any of these issues because it is beautifully written, compelling story that gives some of this history. Vashla said, you have to understand the history to understand African-American reactions to um, these deaths. And so this is a story of um, four boys in Florida that are charged with capital murder and subjected to all sorts of abuse while they're being housed by these racist Southern sheriffs. So yes, it's not lighter note, but it's important. All right. All right. My cocktail chatter is about an amazing story that Jody Cantor did in the New York Times on Friday about Starbucks and the way in which Starbucks is scheduling its workers so that it's very hard for them to live, leave their lives. They ha- get their hours at the mm. last minute. Their hours are constantly mm. shifting around. The lead character in the piece is having a lot of trouble just arranging childcare mm. for a kid and finishing her coursework for college because she's constantly having to be at the beck and call of her Starbucks managers. So this piece ran on Thursday morning. By the time we are taping, Starbucks has already announced that it is changing its scheduling policies. Wow. So we'll see what that means, but it seems like the rare example of impact journalism that actually hits its mark. And as a journalist, I can tell you that almost never happens. So it's really exciting to see. So we've changed Starbucks scheduling practices. Now we all, all we have to do is change race and law enforcement, and we're good for the weekend. <laughs> exactly. We can all hit the beach. All right. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining me. I missed having David and John here, but not really, because we got to have such a good discussion without them. Thank you both so much. This was really good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash gabfest. I am not going to try to do the credits in any sort of clever, plotsian way. You can email us at gabfest at slate.com or comment at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. In fact, I can't even barely read these credits, even though they're written out for me. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. It apparently helps other people discover the show. Find it by searching for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. And if you have something nice to say, please leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tani. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. For James Foreman and Veshla Weaver, I'm Emily Bazlan. Talk to you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.